This podcast is sponsored by CFA Institute, the global association of investment professionals whose mission is to lead the investment profession by promoting the highest standards of ethics, education, and professional excellence for the ultimate benefit of society. CFA Institute serves a global community of investment professionals working to build an investment industry where investors' interests come first, financial markets function at their best, and economies grow. The Chartered Financial Analyst Credential is the most respected and recognized investment management designation in the world. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of CFA Institute. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and this is Invest Like the Best. This show is an open-ended exploration of markets, ideas, methods, stories, and of strategies that will help you better invest both your time and your money. You can learn more and stay up to date at InvestorFieldGuide.com. Patrick O'Shaughnessy is a Principal and Portfolio Manager at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Patrick and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. My guest this week is Pat Dorsey, who is the longtime director of research at Morningstar, where he specialized in what we call economic moats, sources of sustained competitive advantage that allow a few companies to deliver huge returns over time. Several years ago, he left Morningstar to form his own asset management firm, Dorsey Asset Management, and build a portfolio of companies with wide moats like those he studied at Morningstar. And while moats are critical, equally important is how companies allocate the capital generated or made possible by the existence of the moat. A special thank you to Brian Bears, who introduced me to Pat, and also to Will Thorndike, an earlier guest on the show. In the vast majority of the conversations you hear, I'm meeting the guest for the first time. I mention this to encourage you to connect me with anyone whose story or way of looking at the world might resonate. Always feel free to contact me with ideas. Pat and I begin our discussion with the key differences between the sell side and the buy side, and then discuss all aspects of moats and capital allocation. Please enjoy our conversation. Yeah, well, I thought a fun place to start would be the transition from the sell side to the buy side. I'm always intrigued by people that cross that threshold. And so I'd love to hear what was the most surprising and, and or difficult thing during that transition phase. So there's two big differences in going from the sell side, which I promise not to take umbrage at, given that we were an independent firm and not commission-based morning <laughs> star, but that's all right. I mean, we're selling equity research. On that side of the street, you're paid to say yes. On the buy side, you're paid to say no. That's the simplest answer I can give. Because if you're selling research, everybody wants an idea. Everybody wants an idea. What you got? What you got? What you got? What you got? And on the buy side, you're paid to not lose money. You're paid to do a few smart, a small number of smart things, which means you have to say no to a lot of stuff. And I think the second big difference is that on the sell side, there is no, there's no sizing. Everything is binary. I like it, I don't like it. It's a buy, it's a sell. But it's much harder on the buy side because it's a, is it a 5% position buy? Is it a 10% position buy? Is it a buy all 5% now? Is it a buy half and wait? <laughs> it's a much more nuanced process than just do I like it or not. We're going to spend most of our time talking about your process for evaluating businesses, which was rooted in your research on the sell side. So you developed Morningstar's or, or led the development of Morningstar's moat ranking, or I don't know if there's a specific name, but effectively a look at 
how defensible an economic moat is for stocks around the world. And so the framework that we'll follow today is first to talk about what the hell a moat is. Everyone talks about moats, um, but it's kind of hard to dimensionalize or understand what that means. And then two, capital allocation and, and sort of how the market misprices moats. So we'll begin with, with moats themselves, a term popularized, I think, by Buffett. I'll let you begin by just describing what that might mean, and then we'll get into how to identify different kinds of moats and what they might mean. I mean, the simplest way of thinking about it is it's a structural characteristic of a business, in structural meaning inherent to the business. You cannot separate this characteristic from the business itself that insulates the business from competition. That's the simplest way of thinking about it. The t- you can't think of Tiffany without the Tiffany brand. The two are one and the same. You know, you can't think of SAP without thinking about switching costs. It's really hard to rip the stuff out once you have it. And so that structural attribute is what gives the business leeway to reinvest capital at high rates of return, not without competition, but with competition making it more difficult for competition to do what economic theory says it should, and which generally does happen for the vast majority of businesses, which is drive down above average returns of capital. So the return on invested capital is an interesting way of thinking about uh, moat, right? And But the reinvestment potential is a, is a key attribute of this as well. Michael Mobus and others have done really interesting research on the mean reverting nature of re- returns on invested capital, that they do mean revert, but not necessarily instantly or, or it could take up to 10 years. Can you give a sense for kind of what part of the stock market universe might have in percentage terms or something like that might have one of these kind of moats that we talk about? Oh, sure. And that's a great question because I think it's something that's utterly undiscussed in classical finance textbooks, which is that not all businesses are created equal. And it's also not that not something you really get from the sell side because the sell side is full of specialists who are paid to say, of the really awful companies I cover, this is the least awful. And that was, in fact, actually my personal frustration with the with the Michael Porter Five Forces work that led me to develop the moat work at Morningstar, which is that Porter's role was writing for business owners, and he was a consultant. And you don't gain business as a consultant by narrowing your market and saying, if you run an auto parts company, you're host. Just do something different. You want auto parts customers, right? And so the idea there was maximize, even if you have something an awful business. Whereas as an investor... Well, you can just skip the business. You don't have to invest. And so it's a critical, I think, thing to remember that business quality, economic moats, are not normally distributed across the market. There are some parts of the business, consumer packaged goods, enterprise software, that just have competitive advantage all over the place. And there's plenty of others, life insurance, commodity chemicals, pick your area, that just stink. <laughs> They're just really hard businesses. So let's talk about your framework for identifying and measuring moats, kind of four key categories, and maybe we can start with intangibles. Um, so so what intangibles might represent a moat? Um, and throughout all these questions, I'm also curious to, to hear your opinion on things that might signal or look like it might mean a moat, but in fact, is sort of like fool's gold. Yeah, um, so, absolutely. So we'll start with, uh, with intangibles. How might companies... Uh, and this is relevant for business owners too, I think. How might companies build or as an investor identify a moat in intangibles? Yeah, and so you know, the intangible asset is just what it sounds like. It's not on the balance sheet, but it gives pricing power. So you can think of a brand, you can think of a patent, you can think of a license, you have a landfill or a, granite or a gravel pit, or to make a particular type of aircraft part, all of which are intangibles, but which give the owner of that intangible pricing power. And I think that the key thing to be wary of, to, to address your fool's gold question, is companies love to talk about their brand. They love to say how well-known they are. 
But if that brand doesn't translate into pricing power, it's frankly not worth what the company spends to maintain it. Um, and so you always have to be thinking, you know, what advantage does this brand give you? Does it allow you to raise prices? Does it allow you to price ahead of the competition? If it's a license, you need to think about the regulatory regime because what a regulatory gives, he can take away as well. And so you've seen people write up, you know, really beautiful theses on companies because they have this license to do X, Y, and Z without ignoring the fact that it's perhaps in a country that doesn't have the best rule of law, and there's six more licenses that are about to get handed out to the boss's friends. Let's talk about brand specifically and the different types of, of brand and what might be more or less durable. So we'll come from the positive angle. When you're looking for a company whose mode is dependent on its brand, what are the markers that you're looking for? So I think the thing to ask yourself is always, what does this brand do for the consumer? Does it create positional value for me? When I wear a Rolex watch, which I don't, but if I did, it tells the time, just as the name is a Timex, but it says, hi, I have a lot of money. And that gives positional value to people, right? And so that's the value of that brand. There are other brands that confer trust, a Morningstar Mutual Fund rating, the opinion of a Gartner IT analyst, a Moody's bond rating. These are all things that confer trust because there enough people have used that rating that it has value greater than its actual what it costs to produce it, right? It doesn't cost Moody's any more to produce a bond rating than it would you or I to go look at a, to look at a bond and rate the damn thing. But yet they can price a lot higher than we can because there's social proof involved. Nobody will accept the patent pat bond rating, but they'll accept the Moody's bond rating and then able to access capital markets with it. It's a really interesting idea where in all those examples, I think a key part of that is history and ubiquity, right? So even beyond Rolex, other watch agiles show like intergenerational oh, yeah. uh, pictures. Oh, that and, Patek Philippe ad. Right, yeah, right. that's great. And, and these brands have for the most part, I think everyone you listed, been around a long time and been doing something very consistently. So that trust is sort of trust or even the positional value is based on everyone knowing about it and having it having been around for a long time. How often do you see upstarts in those kind of well-established spaces? Like obviously Moody's and others may have been the first rating agencies. So there's a, a first mover advantage that can grow into the brand we're talking about. But what about the capacity or from your investor seat the, the potential for a new upstart yep. to come in no, and this is a part of Rolex. This is a fabulous question because it is so unbelievably relevant right now, especially to anyone who has historically invested in consumer product, consumer packaged goods, right? Where the brand does not really confer positional value. Nobody thinks you're a better person because you use Tide. But it, what it does is it reduces your search cost, right? You see the orange box and you grab it. Those brands, I would argue, are that type of brand rather, is much more subject to disruption now than it has been at any point in the past 30 or 40 years because those brands were built by control of mass media. If you were Procter & Gamble, if you were uh, Unilever, you could afford to advertise on broadcast TV. Nobody else could. And so you had a privileged position right there. Now you look at what's happened with Dollar Shave, with Chobani. Because you can reach millions, if not hundreds of millions of consumers with YouTube, with Google AdWords, with viral videos, with tons and tons of media, digital media, the barrier to creating mass recognition is vastly lower. And so I think those brands, I would argue, are much less durable today. Not much is maybe a little overstating it. But I think you need to be very cognizant of that if you own one of the Buffett Buffettist inevitables. How inevitable is it truly? And conversely, the ability of things to go viral and scale quickly, I think it's fair to say Amazon is one of the more trusted consumer brands right now. 
It didn't exist 20 years ago. I mean, this is not Rolex. This is not Cartier. It's not been around 200 years. But because from day one, Amazon realized that offline is actually a better business model than online because it has the ability to confer trust, right? Offline, I give you a dollar, you give me a good, and we're finished. We have no relationship anymore. Online, there's all this trust involved in terms of the user experience being what I think it's going to be or what I've been promised that it will be. Amazon figured that out from day one. Let's move to switching costs, which is the second of kind of four key categories. Tell us a bit about what you look for there or, or look to avoid when thinking about moat and, and durability of a moat? Yeah, so the durability really is the key question here, right? Because if a business has high switching costs or, or captive consumers is another way to think about it, it has the incentive sometimes to abuse its position. Uh, those of us in the financial community generally loathe the word Bloomberg when it is mentioned, given the pricing power that it tends to exercise in often very rude ways. <laughs> I think is the best way to put it. And I would think that's the, I would argue that's an example of perhaps a you know, close to abusive pricing power, where perhaps you're not maximizing your market, you're maximizing price. And so what you want when you have a high switching cost business is one that is reinvesting in improving the product and delivering value so that the consumer feels like, yeah, I just paid 3% more, but I'm getting 4% more in terms of the value of the product. The ones, the, the, the switching cost businesses that treat the uh, product as a cash cow and don't reinvest and just milk it, advent, to use another financial example, would be a perfect example of this, of a product that looks like it was made in about 1960, but we have no choice but to use it. What, what is a good example or a favorite example of a firm that's done managed switching costs the right way, so in the way you just described? Oh, boy. So I think a good place to look for this is on vertical market software. So software that's become the language of an industry, the, the plumbing of an industry. You could argue that Microsoft has managed it pretty well. Although the usability of Windows and of Office has often been exceeded by other products, the G Suite, for example. A lot of people actually like G Suite better. The ability of Office to link in and hook in to lots of other things that people use has kept it much stronger than you might have thought. I mean, the demise of Office has been called, I mean, I don't know how many times. You know, what would be another good example? Aviva, which is a company that we own, uh, this is a company that makes essentially very high-end AutoCAD software for designing process plants. Think a chemical plant, think of an offshore oil rig, a lot of pipes in it, very, very complex processes. And their customers are in a highly cyclical business. If you're in a construction contractor, your KBR, for example, you're project-based. And when CapEx is high, you're loving life. And when CapEx is low, you're hurting. And what they've done is made it so that those businesses can flex down their spend, but not too much. So Aviva doesn't have to watch all of its business go away, but the business is able to flex down a little bit because it is a cyclical business. The third, which is one of my favorites, is this notion of network effects. This is kind of the talk of the town, right? Yeah. That a lot of, and I know you own quite a bit of Facebook, so maybe a prime example of a network effect, but that's obvious, right? So network effect being kind of the more people that come involved, the more valuable the network becomes. But dig into that in a little more detail. What, what outside of the obvious examples are some good things to think about when looking for network effects and kind of how businesses themselves should be thinking about developing them. Well, and I think that the key thing there is always be, is to always think, as my users grow, does the fact that there are more users on the network add value to users 
number 10, 20, and 30, the folks who are early on, for example. You know, restaurants are the canonical opposite example. The more people who go to a restaurant, it actually becomes less valuable to you, right? right? <laughs> because the more crowded, the food may get worse. But of course, the more places I can use my Visa and MasterCard, the more valuable that network becomes to anybody who uses it. I think one place people often get confused with networks is what are called sort of radial versus interactive networks. Uh, you know, an interactive network you know, is Facebook, right? I mean, basically tons and tons of nodes connecting with each other. A radial network you know, has basically sort of lanes, there's more hub and spoke. Western Union would be a good example. So, you know, Western Union likes to tout having the most locations globally to send money back and forth. But most of the money is sent along specific lanes. It's sent from Chicago to Mexico City, or it's sent from Chicago to Bangladesh. It is not sent from Bangladesh to Mexico City, (laughs) okay? And so those individual lanes are vulnerable to a lower cost competitor. You know, the fact that it's just, it's a a red herring saying that, oh, we have the most locations there because that just, that's not a relevant number to the moat. So the moat is much less durable than say a Visa or MasterCard where you, it's more like a web than, than a radial network or a hub and spoke. Really interesting. Yeah, I never thought about the distinction between those two, but I guess you want it to be as uh, dispersed as possible, like a Facebook, right? Where you remove any one of those like vertices in the network and it doesn't really matter. Whereas if you pull, I guess if you pull Chicago, Bangladesh out of Western Union, they've got a big issue. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or it, it's, it's more from a competitive standpoint than anything else, right? Like if you wanted to attack Facebook, you have to get all these users in one place or another. But if I wanted to basically just attract Mexican immigrants into, into, in Chicago who want to send money back home to small towns in Mexico, I can attack Western Union with that without touching its Asia franchise, without touching any of its other franchises, right? So I don't have to go after the whole thing. I can just go after a piece of it. And so focus, you can fo- see fine focus competitors doing that. The last one is cost advantages, economies of scale, et cetera. Maybe sum up kind of the key. In today's environment, obviously, scale economies is, is pretty straightforward. But in terms of change, like what, what new ways are cost advantages being Yeah, no, that's a great question. Markets? I think we're used to, we're, we are trained to think about cost advantages in terms of manufacturing in B-School 101, like, you know, reduce the marginal unit cost because, you know, you can reduce it at a lower marginal cost. But what's becoming more and more common with value being produced by intangible assets, value being produced by R&D, value being produced by scope, is the value of scale to lend durability to a business. So think about Google and Facebook's investments in artificial intelligence right now. It's a hot buzzword, but it is a good example because machine learning benefits from scale. The more data you feed through it, the better it gets. And the more data you feed through what you got that's now better, the better that gets. And so that is, it's not a scale advantage in terms of it reduces cost. It doesn't reduce cost at all, but it improves the product. It improves the output for the consumer. So I would argue that's a scale advantage in the same way that having the biggest factory to produce widgets is. Another thing I think people often miss is what sort of I think might sort of scope advantages, that you've just been doing something longer than anybody else. You know, if you've been focused on a very small part of the market for 30 years and you've nailed all these small little nuances to running dollar stores, I mean, look, in the U.S., the dollar store has come down to basically duopoly at this point. And retail is a tough business. And so it's certainly not as durable as a moat as having the kind of the AI scale that Google and Facebook do. But I think, and I'll admit to this, I think it's easy to undervalue experience, you know, the ability to serve a niche 
profitably for a very long period of time and to have developed just lots and lots of little trade secrets that make it hard for the competition to replicate. These four dimensions are all interesting, especially when they start to interact to create maybe very defensible moats. But now we need to move to the investor side of the equation. So first question will be, how do you take those four components and object as objectively as possible, come up with some ranking or system? Um, you know, I'm a quant, so I can't help yeah, but yeah, yeah, think about it this way. Um, but is there is there a method by which we could take these four? And I realize that the determination of the four might be very subjective. But let, let's say you've got some opinion of, of the four for company XYZ. How do you start to build this into an investing framework that can be used in an actual strategy? Yep. Well, I think the thing is, the first thing is four is not better than one. To realize that, I mean, if you've got one incredible brand, Tiffany's brand, you know, one incredible moat, Tiffany's brand or Facebook's network effect, whether you had the others or not, doesn't really matter that much. You don't need to have, like, four is not better than one. Four moats is not better than one moat. What matters is your ability to maximize that moat, to reinvest back in that moat. And that's why, you know, we have gravitated towards businesses that are less mature and can reinvest. Because I think where moats become Mungarian Lollapaloozas is when each dollar of cash flow can be reinvested in incrementally higher rate of return. And that doesn't happen if you have a static moat. That's great. Coca-Cola, right? The moat is the moat, but it's not really getting bigger. And the reinvestment potential isn't very high, right? All the cash needs to get paid out to shareholders via dividends or repurchases. But if you have a business where each year the moat gets a little bit better, and so returns on capital get a little bit higher each year, and there's reinvestment potential. So the dollar that's reinvested at 18% this year gets reinvested at 20% next year, gets reinvested at 22 the year after that. How do you think about this from a mispricing standpoint? So there's only alpha if you've done a better job of evaluating the value of, say, a moat than the market has. And some of this comes in timing. So I think it's hard to argue markets haven't focused more and more on the shorter and shorter term. It's where a lot of the brain power and machine power is being focused is next quarter's earnings. So tying into this idea of a longer time horizon as an advantage, how do you think about, okay, let's say, so Facebook, let's stick with Facebook since you own it and it's obviously well known. Um, so it has an enormous network effect, but I don't think anyone doesn't think that. So then the, the alpha becomes, well, its network effect is actually more powerful than the market has discounted. So how do you think about identifying those gaps specifically? Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a perfect example because on Facebook's Q217 earnings call that was just last week, probably half the analyst questions were on Messenger which is not monetized now and will probably not contribute materially to earnings for several years. No one asked a whole lot of questions about the core platform that's growing 50% per year <laughs> and cranking out a 47% operating margin and how long that can continue. That's what you need to be focused on, is what's the return on ad spend for an advertiser right now? So in the case of Facebook, the alpha comes not from saying, oh, there's a network effect here. The alpha comes from looking at it from the advertiser side, not the consumer side, and getting icky. You know, advertising is icky, right? Google doesn't like to admit it's an advertising company. Facebook doesn't like to admit it's an advertising company. Reconnect humanity. You're a big ad company. But once you sit in the advertiser's seat and say, what does this platform do for you that other platforms cannot do? How does it enable you to reach people in ways that other platforms do not enable you to reach people? What is the return on spend on the dollars you give to it? And the answers that come back are incredible. Well, that's, that's, that's when things get interesting. And that's where, so network effects are great, but if they're not monetized, they don't mean doodly to, to an investor. And so I think focusing on not kind of the, the ethereal kind of, ooh, there's a network effect, but how do you make money off of that? How do you monetize it? 
I mean, Yelp is a great example. So Yelp has under-monetized. So TripAdvisor has arguably under-monetized it, their own moats in, the, in the, the review databases that they have. And so the network effect, it's just, it's not as valuable if you can't monetize. How do you think about price, traditional statistical cheapness? So Google and Facebook, two examples we've talked about, by traditional measures, pick your fundamental price to whatever, look very expensive relative to, maybe not Google as much, but... Yeah, not, not Google as much. Certainly Facebook looks statistically very expensive. So how do you, how do you square kind of that multiple, how do you come to a market consensus multiple and kind of incorporate current price or valuation in your view for potential future return? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the first thing is to take the, one of the first words in your question statistically and eliminate it from your jargon, eliminate it from your analysis, because the businesses with moats that compound best over time have futures that are vastly different than their past. And statistical, quote, unquote, valuation does not just can't see that. It can say, what has it, where is it today relative to where it has been? So when MasterCard came public, it was the first of the payment networks to go public. It was printing like a 13, 15% operating margin. Okay, it's pretty good, right? And so, you know, it just doesn't look that good as a business. But if you then think about the qualitative characteristics, that it was owned by a whole bunch of banks before it came public, which means it was probably not man- managed optimally. And then if you just run through the very simple mental exercise of, okay, MasterCard gets $1 of incremental revenue. What is the cost it needs to put in to generate that dollar? Uh, not much. <laughs> you know, the operating leverage thesis is just not rocket science to come up with. But statistical analysis isn't going to show you that, right? Um, Facebook, same thing. I mean, two years ago, they printed a 31%, a a mid-30s operating margin, low 30s, because they just bought WhatsApp, and a lot of that got allocated to R&D. But that has nothing to do with the incremental economics of the business, the fact that they pay nothing to generate their content, and the advertiser pays them a whole bunch to get access to the the users. So what it involves, I think, is carefully, logically, and creatively thinking through the core economics of the business. Let's say there's a moat. What should Amazon do, for example? What should it be its future strategy? Well, I mean, basically, strategy and capital allocation should both serve the moat, should both serve to strengthen the moat, right? And I think, as you point out, Amazon is the canonical example of, of this because everything has been focused on making the customer's life easier. So if the customer's life is easier, they'll use it more. To go back to Facebook, you know, it's how do I keep users engaged? Because if users aren't engaged, if they don't come back to the platform every day, there's less reason for the other users to come back to the platform every day. And so you have to keep that flywheel going. And in their case, it's adding things like live video and whatever else it might be. You know, if your moat is a brand, then you have to ask yourself, again, break it down into, is it a positional brand? Is it low search costs? Is it one that garners trust? And so if it's one, just take the example of one that garners trust, you have to ensure that a trust is based on social proof. Uh, and so that's why you see Gartner analysts always out there in the media saying, oh, we think the market share for this thing will be this or that. And why? Because that gets the name recognition of Gartner out there. And it says that if I'm a, C- a CTO and I go to my boss and say, we should spend on this software product versus that one, why will Gartner thinks they're the better one? That has some resonance to him or her. Before we get deeper into capital allocation, I forgot a fun question, which is, so we established the four types of, or four dimensions of a moat. If you, and we'll go sub moat, so a brand could be, could be the answer here versus intangible. If you were starting a business and we don't know what the business is, <laughs> but I bestowed you ahead of time with the knowledge that you're going to get one of these aspects of brand is going to be fantastic. What would you pick? So what would be the most intriguing 
dimension of, of moat if you could guarantee you had it ahead of time? Well, if you can guarantee that you have it, then it's a network effect, right? Because it, it feeds on itself. It, buy, it, it grows. It, a network effect business grows itself with very little marketing dollars. So just the fact that you said guarantee takes me straight to that position. What about, but what about without the guarantee? Time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Without the guarantee, I think it's high customer switching costs. You know, when you have a product that becomes integral to a customer's life, they literally cannot do their job or function without whatever product you might have, that is an insanely powerful place to be. Uh, and it just gives you enormous pricing power over time. Sometimes those businesses do have challenges growing because you basically, you become integral to the lives of all the customers you're going to get. And then, the, then it becomes a return of capital story. I mean, you see this with vertical market software companies. They, they, have a hard, they sometimes have a hard time growing. And so that's where, to your, to your question, capital allocation becomes a bigger and bigger question. Because what you don't want is the VMS company that spits off cash going out and buying another VMS company. I mean, if you're Mark Leonard at Constellation and that's your, part of your strategy, well, then great. But if you're just dominant in one business and you go out and buy another one, I mean, two plus two does not equal four. Two plus two probably equals two and a half. My guess, I was going through the list uh, before our conversation, and I, was, I, would, I would have guessed that you would have said positional value brand, something like a Rolex, because of how I'm always interested in things that don't change, right? Yeah. So um, things that reliably in 10 years will be the same, sort of like the opposite of like a technology company or something like that. And it seems like there's such low turnover in the big positional yeah, brands. And you're totally right about that. And I think those are ones where as an investor, you know, if you can essentially, you know, look at those brands and th- I would say those are the brand, those are the brands that lend themselves best to your statistical valuation analysis, which right. we're just saying, right. You know, when Tiffany gets statistically cheap, when uh, Richemont, you know, which owns Cartier and a whole bunch of other big brands you know, gets statistically cheap, you should take a hard look. And if the moat has not been impaired, you should take an even harder look. I mean, the only caveat there is you do have occasional spurts in demand. So, right. You know, there was about, you know, eight, 10 years ago, a huge spurt in demand for luxury products coming out of China, partially because people are getting more money, but partially as bribes. And with the big corruption crackdown a few years ago, you saw sort of a structural slowdown in growth. And so you would want to make sure that your statistical analysis sort of incorporated the longer view of growth, you know, which is probably like four to six percent volume growth and not the one that was bumped up for a few years by the, by the China experience. Because if you use that, as your arbiter of statistical cheapness, you probably would be misled into paying too high a price. I love your line that capital allocation is effectively the link between business value and shareholder value. So we've spent the conversation thus far talk, really talking about business value, good, things that create good operating companies. But it's a really important point that two things can screw that up. The price you pay, so you can overpay for a great business, and then it's not a good investment. But maybe more interesting is that if you have a terrible capital allocation plan or managers that are awful at allocating capital once it's been generated, that can also destroy from an investor's seat the value of a fantastic operating business. So talk about your view on what makes for a good capital allocator and what you look for in investments. Thoughtfulness, I think, is probably, if I had to summarize it in one word, we frequently talk to companies and say, okay, so let's talk about, you know, buybacks. And like, oh, well, our goal is to do about a third buybacks and a third dividends and then a third, you know, accretive M&A. I mean, that's the dumbest ass answer I've ever heard. Um, I mean, that's not a thoughtful answer. That's a pull it out of your ass answer. <laughs> you know, you know if, if you have tons and tons of opportunity in a given year, cut the dividend and buy a company. I mean, great. I mean, market will probably kill your stock, but you generate a lot of value. And so it's thoughtfulness, right? It's about thinking through 
what makes the most sense for generating future returns for your business, whether that's buying back stock or uh, reinvesting in products, projects. I think you see this in the UK, Australia, some other parts of Europe. You have this, what we call the dividend fetish, where basically, you know, paying out dividends is the, the, the sine qua non of a great business, which is just asinine. And of course, in the US, you have this you know, buyback fetish, which is, of course, equally moronic, because when your buybacks are just sopping up options dilution, it doesn't add a damn bit of value to me. So I think it's that capital allocation needs to be thought through just as carefully as business strategy, right? Just in, in the same way that you would want a competent CEO to say, okay, how are we building the moat? You know, and lay that out very clearly. Say, okay, how does your capital allocation strategy help me as a shareholder make money? You, know, you want a thoughtful answer to that. And I know that's loosey-goosey, but there is, because there is no good answer, right? For some businesses, it could be pay out the dividend. For some businesses, it could be just buy back shares like a banshee over five years' time. You know, for some businesses, it could be acquire like, like Matt. But the key is, don't have it be a stock off-the-shelf answer. Have it be an answer that's specific to that business and that does not do things just because other people do them. One of the things we've studied quantitatively, uh, which obviously is, you know, this is a very qualitative area, but... But it can be studied qualitatively, sure. Quantitatively, one of the interesting findings is looking at lumpiness. So you mentioned that idea of a third, a third, a third. And what you find is that companies that do that kind of thing just sort of have a steady state capital allocation. It doesn't mean they're going to be terrible underperformers, but the best performing stocks tend to have a little bit more lumpy type results. So take buybacks as the example, companies that do, you know, 1% every year, 2% every year don't really outperform, but ones that randomly gobble up 10% of their shares in a very short window tend to outperform by quite a wide margin. Yeah, so, that's cool. So you want to, so you kind of run sort of a high, a high level of variance in repurchases. Yeah, exactly. Or, or variance of capital allocation policy of the, if there's a pie, right? that um, you can do these five or six things, if that moves around a little bit more, and I, I guess you'd have to have success at moving it around, um, so it's not easy, but that, that might make more sense than that just like, it's fixed, just kind of do this, yeah. this, no, no, this totally, thing. You're totally agree, totally agree. That, that, I mean, that makes intuitive sense, right? Because acquisitions aren't, don't come along every day, and your stock's not cheap every day. I think maybe one rule of thumb would be, you said thoughtfulness, I would think about it in terms of what's the highest return, right? Like it sounds obvious, right? Just as investors look for companies that are going to deliver the highest return, CEOs should be doing the same thing. And sometimes that might mean buy a company. Sometimes it might mean send everything back because you're mature. Yeah. Highest return and setting, a, setting a, a high and reasonable hurdle rate. We see this, especially with the European companies we look at, given how low interest rates are in Europe, is that, you know, companies think that beating their WAC, you know, in like year three, when WAC is seven, is like a good outcome. Like that's our hurdle. I mean, we, I, God, oh my God, just, this is a few months ago. I sat down with a company in London and they were one of these, yeah, our goal is to beat our whack in year three kind of things. And I was just like, why? Uh, you know, why, well, like, why is that your hurdle rate? And I just got this blank look from the woman I was talking to. Like, well, what other hurdle rate would we use? An absolute number, something higher. <laughs> you know, as an investor, I can buy anything in the world. I can allocate capital anywhere. Why would I allocate my capital to you, sir? in this case it was ma'am, um, to out then reallocate my capital with a 7% hurdle rate. That makes no sense whatsoever. And so that's another one I would say is that uh, in addition to thoughtfulness, absolute hurdles. Like relative hurdles, like beating our whack is just, is, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's squishy, right? What you be the goal in investing is make money, compound capital, whether you're a CFO or a, a portfolio manager. And so if you don't have an absolute bar that, we think 10% is good. We think 12% is good. We think 20% is achievable, whatever. And things need to clear that hurdle for us to allocate capital. 
you can talk yourself into some pretty dumb stuff. You really do need kind of independent thinking, not just buying back shares because other people are independent thought seems like another key attribute of a thoughtful capital allocator. Yeah. 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 The, the, the willingness to do stuff that looks optically stupid, but then later on turns out to be the smartest thing going. I mean, just to go back to Amazon, when they, I mean, do you remember when they launched Amazon Prime? And people thought that was the free shipping. What? <laughs> people went crazy, right? It's a good example. I mean, it's actually, I, I, you know, Patrick, I never thought about this. That's actually probably a good one, a good, not a bad test, that when you have a, a decision by a company that where there's a giant hue and cry and everyone just kind of says, oh, that's the dumbest thing ever, that's probably worth a hard look. I'd love to try to codify your process a little bit. So we've talked a lot about the key things you look at, but like anyone, you, I think it's all equities, right? Your portfolio and fairly concentrated. So 10 to 15 stocks. So certainly no closet index from start to finish. What are the stages? So you've got some investable universe. Um, you've got LP dollars and you need to start winnowing that universe down. So what are the stages of that? How do you think about it? Um, And as many stages as we can draw, I'm I'm fascinated by this for more um, discretionary traditional asset managers relative to quants where it's obviously it's it's exactly codified. Um, So so how does that, starting at, you know, 3,000 companies or 5,000 companies you can buy, what happens next? I mean, so I think the thing, the first thing for us is throw out all the stuff that we're not interested in. And so these would be, you know, commodity chemicals, life insurance, businesses that just have structurally awful economics. And those tend to comprise a higher proportion of the equity universe outside the U.S. than in. So it actually kind of narrows the world pretty fast. And then, you know, you start fishing in the pond. So that's, that's step one, right? Fish where the fish are. Don't, don't fish where there are no fish. And then the next step is really thinking about businesses, just sitting down and thinking about businesses that have structural tailwinds behind them in the case of Facebook, digital advertising, you know, advertising going from offline to online, e-commerce in the case of Amazon. What, you know, because things, when, when companies have the wind at their back, and their market, end market is growing quickly, can cope, not, I don't want to say cover up a lot of sins, but it really sure makes their life easier. But so thing one, find businesses with good attract structural economics, which tend to, as we said earlier, cluster in specific industries. Could you list maybe, I don't know, five examples of industries like that? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, so, so the pay- payment networks, right? Obviously, it's an easy one. Uh, you know, MasterCard, Visa. The processors, that's, I wouldn't say a commodity industry, but there's not a lot that differentiates one merchant acquirer from another merchant acquirer, aside from, from scale to some extent, but they all kind of do the same thing. They have similar tech stacks, I would argue. You know, so the vertical market software, you know, software that becomes kind of the language, the, 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 the plumbing, you might say, of an industry. Exchanges. Exchanges tend to be beautiful businesses. Futures exchanges tend to have much better margins than cash equity exchanges because futures are non-fungible. You have to open and close the position of the same exchange as opposed to, you know, can buy something at NYSE, sell it on ARCA. Those tend to have very good structural economics. Uh, you know, obviously, as we've talked about, the, the positional goods, luxury brands, consumer products, those tend to have very good economics, but have challenges when it comes to reinvestment. And that's where you want, you know, really, I, mean, I think capital allocation becomes more of a challenge. You use the term good economics. Can you be a little more specific on what that means? Is it margins? Is it? Well, the, the, yeah, yeah, the end result, the, I mean, good economics at the end of the day means good high returns on capital, right? Which you can achieve with low margins and high asset velocity or low asset velocity and high margins. But I guess when I think about good economics, it's not just ROIC, it's the ability to grow the pie over time, right? Because a, a high ROIC that can't grow I then have high capital allocation risk. If you have a business that's a high return on capital and just spits off cash, 
Well, either they're going to pay it to me as a dividend, in which case I got to figure out what I have to do with it. So why did I study this business? <laughs> or they're going to do something with it, in which case now I have capital allocation risk. Uh, which maybe, which if the if the business gets a great capital allocator, well, fine, that's good. That's a whole separate set of questions that you need to answer. Whereas, if the business has high returns on capital, the ability to reinvest capital. And the ability to reinvest capital usually comes from either having small market share and being able to take market share in a market that's not growing, or the ability to just keep your market share but grow along with a market that's growing very quickly. E-commerce grows at 15%. So even if you're not Amazon, you can do pretty well in e-commerce just because there's a structural shift in dollars from A to B. And that kind of, I don't want to say it, it doesn't take the capital allocation question off the table, but it means that you can just stay focused as an analyst on how are the, what are they doing internally? How are they reinvesting those dollars, right? Because there are plenty of companies are, like, would Jeff Bezos be a great acquirer? I don't know. Like, if you put Jeff Bezos in charge of a company that did not grow and said, you now need to, like, here's a great example. What if you exchanged Jeff Bezos and Mark Leonard? Could Jeff Bezos run Constellation? It's a, because it's, it's a very different business. I mean, capital allocation is capital allocation. Capital allocation of buying businesses, nurturing independent teams that then kind of send cash back up to the headquarters, which is what Constellation does, versus, I would say, a more ruthless culture in Amazon that is just laser-focused on one thing, delight the consumer, damn the torpedoes. (laughs) I'm not sure those are interchangeable, but that's all internal reinvestment, right? And deciding between Project A, Project B internally and some don't work like, you know, the Kindle Fire, and some work beautifully like Amazon Prime. I guess I would argue that's a different skill set. This reminds me of a fun question, kind of a version of which I asked Will. The question is, if you could take any one business, so you get to choose your business today, but you have to swap out its current leadership, its current CEO, and put someone else in, what company would you choose and who would you swap in? Oh, man. That's really fun. See, and it would be, it's more fun if you to go kind of off the run. Yeah, that's no, no I, rules other than that. No, no, I know, I know. That's why you want to go, through, go, go, go off the run. I mean, so I'm trying to think of like mismanaged businesses. I mean, there's Yahoo, but honestly, it was so horrible by the time Meyer, she took over that I'm not sure you could have, you could have plunked anybody else there and they would have done much, much of a better job, honestly. Man. It's just, it's just funny because we tend to throw these things out very quickly in our process. Ones where, you know, you just, you know, you, you, know, you can't change management. We, we, we don't do activism. Um, and so we just kind of keep, keep on going. Ooh, Blackbaud. There's a good one for you. So Blackbaud uh, dominates the market for uh, fundraising software. So if you're a YMCA or you're the city opera or whatever. And current management, A, is vastly overpaid. And B has made some absolutely stupendously bad capital allocation decisions, we think, in terms of getting outside their moat. So I think if you just, because it's a very sticky product, right? I mean, you think about most nonprofits, right? They don't have a giant IT department. So once the software comes in, you're just going to keep using it. It's called Razor's Edge, R-A-I-S-E-R. And the customer work we did indicated that the platforms was almost MS-DOS-like for a long time, very low reinvestment. But the customers, this is kind of, all they had, right? The, the sales force didn't really work for them. I mean, boy, you could have maximized that. So who would you, you pick to do it? Oh, boy, who would I pick to do it? 
I'm not sure Mark Leonard would take the job. He's got too. He's got. He's, he's got too good of a that's job. Right, you've got the power of God. He's, he's got too good. We probably, look. I think for any VS, VMS company that's under managed, you just drop Mark Leonard in. Uh, I mean, he's got I would say, a more nuanced understanding of what drives a good VMS business than anyone I've ever met. Um, I had the great good fortune to meet him one on one at their offices one time, and then I, I saw him speak to a class of Columbia students about a year and a half ago, uh, and those were both uh, master classes. And you know, there's some people you, you, you meet with in any industry, I mean, for, for Mark Leonard, it's VMS software, who it's just chap, you're getting chapter and verse, right? So there's one, the CEO of one company we, have, we own currently, I still remember he visited us not long ago, and he talked about as a salesperson at a company, and in this case it was software, it could be anything. He said, your goal as a salesperson is to get the hall pass. Your goal is to show up and be able to walk around that building and talk to anybody you want. You want to be so familiar with the security guard, with the secretary, with everybody, you want the hall pass. And I was like, that's a great way to think about a sales culture. I mean, it's a great way to think about when you're talking to companies and assessing whether they can sell well or not. You know, how, may, how are people getting out on the street? How well are they doing? Do they have the hall pass? It was just kind of a cool way of framing it. Very cool. So coming back to your process. Yeah, anyway, so, so fish and ponds where the, fish, where the, where the, where the yeah. fish are. And so, you know, mechanically what we'll typically do is we'll do a quick idea, which is just sort of a paragraph or so and kind of what's the moat, what's the opportunity, what's the idea here. And then I'll decide what to do, what's called a first pass memo on, which is basically a two thirds to a day's worth of work, uh, which is not answering the question of should we invest? It's answering could we invest? It's does this business have the characteristics we want in terms of reinvestment potential, structural advantages, management that does not misallocate capital? And you know, that's honestly, I think, one of the hardest jobs of any portfolio manager is to allocate the 100 or 200 or whatever hours of research time you have per week because that's, 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 that's a finite asset, right? And so we try to do, we, we do probably seven to eight, nah, seven, seven or so, six to seven, first pass memos per month. Um, maybe one or two of those will kind of get approved for further work. And the approval process for us is very team-based. We're not a top-down shop. I have a very diverse team. They come from different backgrounds, which I think is very, this is a topic for another day, which I think is very valuable in our profession because, you know, we all know that any successful investment shop has a process, has a philosophy, a way of looking at the world. But that can lead you into groupthink, right? That can lead you into, you know, our way is the best way. We don't really, you can kind of reject outside input. And I think one way to mitigate the risk of that is building diversity. I mean, Mobison talks about this a lot, building diversity into your organization, diverse viewpoints. And so those decisions on kind of what to move forward with are very, very much team-based. Um, I mean, you have to have somebody makes the final say, obviously, it's, you can't invest by committee. But then if we just so, I consider, I get the input from everybody, and then we go to what's called a, you know, sort of an in-depth stage um, where we're going to do customer calls, we're going to uh, go to trade shows, get to know the industry backward and forward, and then the key we've found that really adds value to our process, and everyone can cook the, cook the pie differently, is to give ourselves multiple opportunities to say no. Because I think when, if you just send an analyst off and say, you know, go get to know this industry and this company and give me a 20-page in-depth memo in X amount of weeks, if in three days they find out something that kills the idea, they're going to waste the next month. But if the boss said, go write that memo, they're not going to come back and say, boss, this is kind of a really bad idea because I just found out X, Y, and Z. But you have to give people that opportunity. In your process, you have to have those windows where you say, what do we know now that's different than what we knew a week ago, and should we keep going or not? Because this, the most finite asset is not capital. It's time. 
And so you always want to be maximizing the ROI on the research time. Unfortunately, the flight schedules at LaGuardia conspired to shorten our window a bit today, so we're, we're a bit short on time. But for our last question, one of my favorites that I ask everybody is for the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you. The kindest thing? What a cool, that's a really cool one. The kindest thing anyone's ever done for me. There's a professor named Scott Hendricks at Kansas State University. And he's used one of my books in their kind of undergrad investing classes uh, for a while. And when I host the K-State students when they come to Chicago every, every year or so, they, he was actually one of the very first undergrad programs to go see Buffett, those sort of Sunday things that he actually kind of was one of the progenitors of that. And to this day, I think, pretty sure that K-State goes every year, and even like the top MBA programs are on every two-year rotation. But I got a call one Wednesday, and he said, we're going Saturday. You want to be an adjunct professor for a day? Because technically only professors get to go. You know, you have to be faculty to go. Uh, and he figured he kind of shoehorned me in because I'd kind of, you know, written the books or whatever. And I was like, you know, do you, do you want my right leg or my left leg? Yeah, of course. And, you know, he didn't have to do that. He got no benefit out of doing that. I, and I, I couldn't ask any questions. I had to kind of, you know, the students could ask. But, yeah, you know, he's like, here's a chance to kind of hang out with the man <laughs> for two hours. He got no benefit out of that. But, but I think... I'm glad you asked that question because I think it's actually really important in our profession because the, the goal, I think, for all investors should be that the next generation is smarter than you are. Yeah. And so I think that the importance of making time for the, the ones who are coming up. And I, I think about that a lot, actually, because I, I came into this profession a weird way up through Morningstar. And I never really had a mentor, you know, and I actually didn't have the moxie to kind of reach out to people I really respected. And so I respect the hell out of these 25-year-olds who just email me blindly. You know, I mean, some of them, the emails are misspelled. That's a problem. Uh, um, but I, I think kindness matters and the, the importance of making time for the ones who are going to be hopefully replacing you and better than you in 20 years, 30 years time is, is important. Great place to end. This has been really fun. I uh, hope we get to do a round two with a little bit more time next time. Yep. Uh, thank you very much. No, thank you. Hey, everyone. Patrick here again. To find more episodes of Invest Like the Best, go to investorfieldguide.com forward slash podcast. If you're a book lover, you can also sign up for my book club at investorfieldguide.com forward slash book club. After you sign up, you'll receive a full investor curriculum right away and then three to four suggestions of new books every month. You can also follow me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Oshag, O-S-H-A-G. If you enjoy the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes, which will help more people discover Invest Like the Best. Thanks so much for listening.